Artist Plunge podcast, a podcast exploring the curious relationship between artists and the other professions, day jobs, or past experiences that have allowed them to plunge into the art they create. I'm your host, Christy Darnell Batani. My guest today is Swedish mixed media artist and online mentor, Jenny Grant. Jenny approaches her work with the same enthusiasm she channels while mountain biking, remembering to look ahead absorb the bumps, and just keep going. After listening to my conversation with Jenny, I think you will understand why her workshops and online classes are always sold out. Her energy and compassion are contagious. So grab your mittens and let's head to Stockholm to see what Jenny is doing in the studio today. That is the sound of Jenny scraping snow off her boots. She's scraping her boots. That's definitely, she's scraping her boots. Did I get it right? Yeah, it could be right, uh, except it's no snow here at the moment, oh. and it's autumn, yeah. Otherwise, it's quite similar. And the tool is actually quite similar. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what are you doing there, Jenny? I'm doing a paper collage. So I'm using a really hard tool, and sometimes I use the eye scrape that I use for my windows on the oh. on the car to actually uh, do my collage with. I yeah. love it. Hold it up. Let me see it. More like a palette knife. Yeah, that's a palette knife, but I, I do use credit cards. Yeah. And I use eye scrapers from the, from the car. I do for my collage. I, as a Texan, I have no concept of, you know, ice scrapers. Like, what is this? This is so fascinating, right? Like, because for you, like for today, tell us what it's like there for you today. And, and I guess starting, where are you today? I'm from Sweden. I live in Sweden and uh, I live in Stockholm. I'm in my studio at the moment, which is a small uh, house built 1650. So it's very old and it's actually autumn outside. So it's getting colder. Um, I use Celsius. It doesn't really make any sense, but it's 13 degrees Celsius. Don't actually know what that is in Fahrenheit. I'm really bad at Fahrenheit, but yeah. Well, it sounds cold to me because on the Fahrenheit side and in Texas, it's still in the 90s. So this (laughs) idea of fall and autumn, it really, I struggle with it because the the lack of seasonality, um, I find very troublesome. And so I'm very jealous of places that have distinct seasons to them. Um, And I actually want to talk about that, but let's go back to this house. So I have seen on your website, it is just the cutest, sweetest space. It is red in a very traditional way. Maybe you can describe it. You do have a wonderful video on your website. I'm going to encourage people to watch because it just feels magical to walk through your space. But tell us a little bit as we're we're listening today. So we know where we are. It is, it is magic. It's, it's really magical. It's, um, it's an old house. It's built 1650. Uh, it's actually uh, owned by the church, uh, the local church. And the guy that, I don't know what that's called in the in English, but the guy that actually rings the bells uh, when, when there's church ceremonies, uh, he lived here. And during the oh. 1650s, he was, the local teacher and the doctor and uh, he did everything and he took care of the church as well. So he lived here and the house is, uh, it has four rooms um, and in one part, half of the building, the ceiling is uh, so low that I can put my hand in the ceiling. I'm actually touching it, uh, sitting I down. She's touching it right now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And the second or the other half of the house, they have opened up uh, the attic. So it's opened all the way up to the to the roof, actually. Uh, so it's actually four meters high, which is probably four times three. So it's like, I don't know, 15 feet or something high. Could it be? Yeah. yeah something like that. Yeah. And so it's really high, high ceiling in that part. And that's where my studio is. And uh, and then I have uh, storage and a little sitting area and my uh, the the place where I do film all my courses and my classes is in one of these rooms that have really low ceilings actually. Oh my goodness! Still owned by the by the church, 
So I I rent the place from the church still. Is it considered a historic site? Like in the US, we have all these issues. If it's historic, there are limitations on what you can do there. Do you have any restrictions on how you use the space? Yeah, uh, no restriction on how I use it, actually, but I cannot do anything to it. I cannot kind of um, change any, anything inside. So it's, uh, and uh, especially the outside, it's really restricted. I can't do anything on the outside, but yeah. Well, the outside is painted that beautiful red. Yeah. Um, is there is there a name for that red? That, yes. That ubiquitous. Falurred. It's <laughs> it's from a town in Sweden where they have um. Is it copper? Copper mining? Yeah. No. It's it, it's a mine. Yeah. It's a mine. A little town in Sweden where they have a mine, and that's where they actually got the the red color, and they had so much of it, so they actually did this red. it's beautiful and it is kind of that ubiquitous moment of like that's exactly the way I expect Sweden to look you know it's always sort of fun when these made up (laughs) things in your head actually match in real life but I'm curious like you talked about the the bell ringer for lack of knowing what this man was called his job was called but so this I don't know is there an aura or a presence to like all the life that has been in this house before you yeah the energy in here uh, is amazing and and everyone that comes in here says wow this is a cool place so it's it really brings something I actually um had another studio before this or rented another place which was just a big office space and uh, it was bigger than this one and kind of uh, better in one way but when I got asked if I wanted to rent this I knew straight away I said yes I want but I need to kind of get it into my head that I need to move and kind of rearrange a bit how I do my workshops and so on. But absolutely, this is a fantastic place to be in. The whole idea of artists and our spaces is to me just so fascinating. Mm -hmm. I could do, I could, I could read, I could listen to people talk about that all day long because they, there is such a correlation. And when you change one, it is going to impact the other. And so when we make intentional changes, like you picking a new space, like, you know, going into it, it's going to change. It's going to have to change the way you work, which then is likely to change what comes out of that work. And so it's a little scary, but it's also, you know, it's really kind of exciting to see the unknowns that come out of that. Um, I just, I get always tingly about it. Well, how far away is this space from your, where you live? Do you live in the city? Yeah, I know. I live right outside Stockholm. And uh, so it's, it's actually quite close to here. So it's 10 minutes bike ride from, from where I live. So it's very close. And my youngest kid goes to the school that is right by the studio. And yeah, so Mm -hmm. I'm kind of in the middle of, of where I live. (laughs) How wonderful. And you, but you said they found you. Like, how did that come about when they contacted you? I was, it was, I was, I was looking for a studio a couple of years um, previous and, and found a space. But I guess people kind of knew that I was, was looking. <laughs> and so it was through contacts in, in the local area. And uh, someone that had connection within the church asked if I was interested. And yes, yeah. sure. <laughs> she knew she knew that I would say yes. <laughs> yeah, well, but it is part of like putting it out there, letting the world know I'm looking for this thing. And you just never know mm-hmm. what's going to come your way when you start to put those things out. Um, I am curious. I'd love to go back for just a minute. I think just because I'm fascinated with this difference. So a Swedish winter how does that impact your artwork? Like, does it? Does it? Yeah, I guess it. Yes, I, I guess it is. Um, but I'm so used to it, so I have a hard time to kind of correlate what is what. But I actually did um, uh, a class uh, just recently. I actually launched it or opened the classroom on Monday this week, so it's very <laughs> new actually. Where I filmed the class during a year. And I followed oh. the season. It's called, called, even called seasonal flow. So I, I kind of followed the seasons uh, and especially my own kind of cycles or creative cycles through the seasons. And, and yeah. when I did that, I really realized that, yeah, it is different and different kinds of inspiration hits me when mm-hmm. uh, in the different seasons and, and, it has to do very much with um, 
being able to be outside or indoors. So in the winter, we are indoors a lot. And then I spend a lot of time in my studio and I mm -hmm. do a lot of painting. And uh, and during summer, uh, it's light all night as well. So then you're awake and kind of out and energized all the time. So it's different energy and we are in different places. So it does affect uh the creativity absolutely uh but saying that at the same time i i don't feel that i actually paint different things mm -hmm. i kind of just go with that flow both in summer and in in winter but uh i i need different things to kind of mm -hmm. um recharge or yeah. and And during winter, it's much more about me and my internal kind of energy. And uh, during summer, it's much more being out, doing things outside and get input from the outside, actually. And that I learned when when I did this this class. So that's actually quite recent knowledge. Yeah. So I'm still kind of, uh, I'm really interested now going into winter again and see if I kind of feel the same thing as when I on purpose really kind of felt what my, right. my um, creativity did during the right. different seasons. We'll see. <laughs> well, the, the first time the seasonality component really clicked for me or I started thinking about it was uh, early on, I, I did a lot of work in encaustic. So you're using a heat source, right? But um, mm -hmm. when it's 103 outside, being over a hot plate really doesn't sound fun. And also it made the materials react differently. They didn't set mm -hmm. up in the same way. I couldn't be as aggressive. I had to really tone back what I did or wait longer, do different things. And around that time, as I think I made my first visit to Japan, and I just was so taken by the intentionality of the way seasons impact your life, impact your um, livelihood, and just wanting to be more intentional about that. And I'm not sure I've made huge strides, but just that concept is so interesting to me. And I love, I think some cultures are better at it than others just kind of in general, if you're going to make a, yeah. uh, a generalization. And Americans are not particularly good at it. I mean, I think that's a, a bit of a down uh, side of everything is so readily available all the time. Mm. You know, food is not particularly seasonal. I, I know there are people who are trying to get back to that. Mm. And if you live in a climate where there's not a whole lot of change outside and the clothing, like there, there aren't those benchmarks to, no. to make that seasonality. No. And then particularly if you throw in COVID where even the kids aren't going to school, like, no. still the house. <laughs> like where are the benchmarks for seasonality? Yeah. Um, and, but thinking about how it impacts our, our practice. Yeah. I, I have a couple of things that I'm really thinking about when, when you're talking about it. And, and one thing is that in Sweden, Uh, our housing is so well insulated. So the climate inside is exactly the same during summer and winter. And we spend mm -hmm. a lot of time inside. So, so it's for us, kind of like my practice, for example, doesn't really matter if it is summer or winter because my, it's a little bit drier during winter. So my paint might dry a little bit faster, but it's not really humid in the summer. So it doesn't really mm -hmm. affect it. And we are really, we have good lighting, good heating. So it's the inside climate is, is the same, but then outside, of course, it's hugely different because we have no sun during winter and we have only, we don't have sun, but we only have light during summer. So that's, That's really, and it affects our kind of energy and the way we we yeah. behave socially and so on. Um, so, and and living in it, I I can't even see myself without the seasons. My whole life is built uh, through seasons, and we have different traditions when we are going into winter and the dark that really kind of lights us up and so on. And then I lived in New Zealand for. Two years. My husband is a Kiwi, so he's from New Zealand, and we live there with the kids. And in New Zealand, first of all, the seasons are totally opposite. So in right. December, uh, it's summer, and in July, it's winter. And the seasons are not so, uh, they have seasons, but they are not as dramatic as they are where I come from. 
And I found it really hard, actually. I kind of just went mm-hmm. around in the same, probably a bit higher than I do in Sweden, energy-wise, kind of. But it just never ended. It was just the same yeah. all the time. And during winter, where the weather was so-so, there was nothing. It was, I mean, June, July, August, there, there was nothing that kind of helped me to come through winter, where in mm-hmm. Sweden, we have Christmas. We start in November. We put up all the lights mm-hmm. and we we um, have a lot of different celebrations through the whole of uh, December until the day when the light starts to come back. We celebrate and then we kind of, the light is slowly, slowly coming back. And so I found, find, I found that when, when I lived in New Zealand, it kind of, I was really missing the seasons and the up and downs and kind of, so um, yeah, it is, it is affecting people definitely in different ways. I catch myself sometimes when I feel like I'm missing something. And I, if I really look back at it, a lot of times it's because there's a disconnect that like what I'm sort of craving is this internal meditative place, but I'm trying to be in high productivity mode. And I think Mm -hmm. sometimes if I could be more intentional with how I set my practice up for the year, and that's where I would think doing things like classes and things that have a, have benchmarks and you, you know, to work around those and set those at times could actually be quite useful in, in helping keep yourself in a a path that and a track that feels right to wh- the way you create in those different yeah. phases you need. And I, th- I think that the key and also what I found making this class was that I was really listening to myself. What do I want? So independent on if it was summer or winter, that was actually not, I realized that after a while, it was not really summer or winter that was important, even though the whole class kind of it's arranged around that. It's more about what what I feel. I have a low period now. I have I don't really have a lot of energy. I don't have a lot of creativity or no inspiration. What do I do? And and accept that feeling and that uh, and that I really kind of learned through that process to really start listening to myself and mm-hmm. accept that, okay, this is a low period. I don't really have anything to, <laughs> to show yeah. or give. And that's fine. We are so kind of programmed nowadays to be productive. There should yeah. be a result. We should spend all our time to its best. So even yeah. if we have a day off, we need to kind of, oh, I have a day off. What should I do? I need to find something that I really want to do. Right. And if you don't, you feel kind of miserable because you wasted a whole day of being able to do what I wanted to do. Right. Crazy. <laughs> right. We're measuring even uh, how good we were at doing nothing or having a day off of yeah. leisure. Yeah, I want to come back to that. I let's. I feel like I'm doing uh, our listeners a disservice. Of let's talk about your work for a minute, so that people can get a real good visual. Um, so your your paintings, your mixed media artist, and they're very raw. And uh, talk to us about how do you start a painting? Yeah, I I started as I as as I did in the beginning of this podcast actually because I almost always start with collage. I almost always start every painting or every art journal that I do, I start with collage. Every kind of painting session I do, I start with collage. And then I paint on top of that. And that has kind of the process or my process that I create in has developed through many years of being really self-critical and perfectionist and not being able to be happy with what I'm creating at any time. So I kind of found a way to trick my own inner critique and my own perfectionism with a couple of different kind of steps or processes or techniques that I always use to to kind of fool myself or to get into the right mood or whatever expression you want to use. Let's talk about that inner critic and what was it you were seeing that you felt like you weren't making? I I think I had a lot of pictures uh, in my head that I wanted to kind of get out onto a paper or a canvas and it never ended up as as the picture in my head. So when I was young, I was 
doing a lot of drawing and I always always kind of drew something that I saw I I didn't draw out of imagination I was kind of very analytic and very square and not very imaginative as a kid so I did a lot of kind of um, crafty things and I was uh, doing a lot of drawing, painting with watercolor, and it should—it was always supposed to look as as a picture or as it does. You know, it was a lot of details, and and it never came out as I envisioned in my head. My head always had a bigger vision for me than I could actually get out on the paper, and so I stopped making art for many many years during my young. Uh, adult kind of period or age and and uh, and I really missed it but it was it was due to that and when you went to school I know it wasn't for art yeah maybe you can talk a little bit about that I believe uh, am I right that you were a physics major (laughs) yes what was the plan there well what what drew you to physics let's start with that let's not dismiss it like what drew you to that I'm really uh, fascinated with how things work I've been that since I was a little kid I really kind of like mechanics and I really like how things work you know I kind of check the handle to see what happens when I press down the handle or all these things that had some kind of functionality I was always really really interested in and um and then I'm a dyslexic. So through school, I had a hard time reading, very hard time writing. Uh, but I had really good teachers that kind of made me uh, come through school with really good grades anyway. And, and I did a lot of physics and math because that, that's where my head um, was working the best. Yeah, and yeah. so I actually went into university, yeah. and uh, I have a master of science in physics. <laughs> uh, yeah, optoelectronics yeah. and quantum physics and maths. Yeah. Well, and I, I heard you say in another interview that you you chose that because um, it kept the doors open. Yes. And I'm 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 curious about that idea because I I say that to my own daughter, and I'm starting to hear myself say it and think. Is that really what we should be encouraging people to do? Yeah. I, I have a tendency to be that way too. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that, reflecting back on that 20 some odd year old self. Yes, because I have I have kids uh, 17 and 16 now, and I kind of say that to them as well. Uh, but maybe in another way than I said it to myself, because I want them to really do something they want to do. That's the only important part. Um, but to be kind of, knowing what doors you close when you close doors rather than not Mm -hmm. closing them but for me it was I didn't really know what I wanted to do I I never got to kind of school didn't work that way and and to really feel what you want to do I don't know I never I was not even thinking about it but in in fairness, it's like, how can you know? Like, you've only seen a teeny, <laughs> tiny bit of the world. Like, how can you possibly know what all's out yeah. there and what you want from it? And I think one th- one thing that I've really learned changing my kind of career, career is also that you can change. So do yeah. what you feel now and then you can do something else. It's not the end of the world. Uh, but, yeah, for, for me, I went into physics because it it kept all doors open. <laughs> which is a really funny thing but it it was I was thinking about a couple of other uh, things to study but I I felt that just keep kind of my my knowledge base as as wide as possible and for me that was as wide as possible because anything that had to do with reading it was not an option at all that was not an option because I could never and uh, kind of become a doctor or a lawyer or anything that had to do with reading a lot of words. Yeah, yeah. Well, so then you went on and and had a, a very extensive career in med, med tech and, and working with products uh, for the medical community. Were you, um, I know at one point you were working more like in business development and, and helping be the liaison there. Were there parts of that that you enjoyed? Yes, I, I did enjoy what I was doing. I was working... Uh, within high tech and med tech was my kind of uh, I loved to work with with medical electronics because it was very close to the human body and 
and helping people and also uh, developing technology, high tech, really kind of complicated systems for people that were not technical, so nurses and, and doctors, and really make them easy to use and super high tech. And, and that was kind of what I was, I, I love that. And I really kind of, as I said from the beginning, I love to understand how things worked and to make other people understand and be able to use products in a very simple and intuitive way was, was what I was kind of, yeah. I'm seeing an overlap of this uh, skill set you seem really good at is sharing how you approach things and helping other people understand it and getting great joy and satisfaction and helping them understand that because that's going to come I think full circle back when we talk more about your teaching and workshops. So it's interesting how even then it was a part of your life in a different capacity. Yeah, I haven't really thought about it like that. You really kind of made something clear that I haven't really thought. You're right. I mean, because <laughs> that's exactly what I do now. And I really want people to kind of get into something that is kind of hard. And yeah. and I want to make it super simple. Oh, yeah, you just made something kind it, of... It, <laughs> It's like spending other people's money. It's way easier to look from the outside in than to do it from your own self. Like, yeah. it's just a totally different. <laughs> well, I'm curious, though, like, are there, well, let's stay there for a second. Like, are there, were there things about that role that you served um, that you felt like you were particularly good at and, or skills that you got from that that you, you know you continue to use today? Yeah, I, I think actually I'm, I'm really, I'm really curious. I really kind of want to learn things and, and I really want to, to get other people to understand as, as we were talking about. And I think that was something that I was really good at. Uh, and, uh, I, I remember a couple of meetings where I was trying to get other people to kind of buy into a project or into a product or a change. And where I felt, I walked out and I felt, wow, I really kind of got something. I got a message out and they actually received it and took it. And, and it had not to do with my slides or the actual technical information or anything that I was thinking about. It had to do with how I presented it and kind of my energy. And that's actually, but I haven't really thought about it until you actually Put the question like this now. That was really fascinating. Thank you. <laughs> well, I mean, it's so interesting because to me, I look at you and like, that is your gift. You have this beautiful energy. <laughs> well, there's a laugh. Thank you. There, you just made my point, you know, exhibit A. But no, you do. You have this really incredible energy around you that I've, I, I'm not fortunate enough to be there in person with you or to take a class, but I can only assume that that is what you radiate. Um, if you can radiate that on a Zoom quadcast yeah. call, I know in person that that just oozes out of you. And I think that's a real gift, yeah. honestly, and that, a tough one to teach people. It's, you know, you can teach somebody yeah. some of the tech things, but you can't really teach that. Let's fast forward and you get the opportunity to go to New Zealand. You've kind of introduced that um, with the birth of a third child, correct? Mm -hmm, and getting yes, to take right. some paid leave, which, oh my God, Sweden is truly mm -hmm. my hero. Tell yeah. us, just give us a little brief so people know what they yeah. can be jealous of. Yeah, I mean, this, I, I wish no one had to be jealous about this, but in Sweden, we have 18 months paid maternity leave, 18 months. And for per kid, she said the, paid, by the way, if anyone yeah, missed that, right. those words were yeah. paid. Yeah. 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 And, and it's not just for the mother, the father can take uh, this time, we have it together. And in Sweden, a lot of, of um, parents take half half. So they take mm -hmm. at least six months each, and then they might take the rest. Because the thing is, as well, that you can, you can take this time between the uh, the kid is born, or it's actually a month before, I think, mm -hmm. uh, a month before the kid is born until the kid is seven years old. Wow. So you can, so what, what we did, we took one year and, and then we had uh, six months left that we could kind of 
portion out. We could do a big vacation where everyone, we did something together and, and I had maternity leave and my husband was on vacation or the, uh, the other way around. So, and I think it's three months of these uh, 18 is actually only for the father, which means that mm-hmm. the mother cannot take it all. The father has to mm-hmm. take three of them. Otherwise, you don't get them, which is also, I think, a fantastic So way. interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, and it, you talk about taking a vacation or doing something like that with it. But what it really does, I, I would think, is give you this space to to allow your family to gel, to become one, to, to give yourself a little breathing room to how do we navigate this now that it's different with a new body into this mix. We're different, even if it's our second, third or fourth child. How do how do we move forward? And you do it with this sense of ease rather than this we have a tendency, I think, in the States, it's always frenetic. It's always stressful. It's always sort of sad mm. because, you know, if a mother mm. chooses to go back to work, you're sad. You don't really want to leave the child, but you also have this career that's important to you. And so it gets very mixed feelings, um, which is an unfortunate way to start off this new chapter of your family. But so you you took good advantage of it and you all head off to New Zealand. So tell us about some of the changes that happened to you there. Yeah, we we um we went uh for two years and uh the youngest one was just four months old when we left. Uh, and the two uh, older ones are were seven and five. So they they are a little bit older than than uh, the youngest one and they started school there and both me and my husband was home for quite some time. So we took some of the maternity leave and uh, and my husband actually resigned from his job when we left to be able to to take a job in in New Zealand when we were there after a while. So we kind of had a lot of time together, and uh, I had a lot of time to do things that I wanted to do as well. So I actually on the plane over decided that I want to do two things that are just for me. One is I want to mountain bike. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> something that I had been longing for. And the other thing was that I wanted to paint and do more of my painting. I was painting, but only kind of when I had some time over. And the only thing I did at home was to spend the time. I didn't make anything special. I just created to get some time on my own. But when we got there, I actually Uh, went to a gallery and asked if they wanted to exhibit my art and so on. So I really kind of tried it out. I tried to. And the thing is, when I got there, I was not an engineer. Mm -hmm. I was not a working mom. I was not a business development manager, really successful. I was just a mother. And I said that I was an artist. Nice. So (laughs) I kind of just changed my identity into something that I wanted to be, which is, a big privilege to be able to get that opportunity to just kind of try something else without people around you knowing that, no, you're not an artist. You're an engineer. (laughs) That's such an interesting point. The, the, the weight of labels Mm -hmm. and of job labels and identities particularly, and that includes mother and father. Um, And it, and sometimes I think it does take sort of a seismic change mm. for you to feel comfortable either letting go of those or trying, willing to try on a new label. And the calling yourself an artist is just, I think, such a huge mountain for many of us. But, you know, living in a this fictional world, this fictional place with a fictional life, it's like, why not? Yeah. And that's really beautiful. I, I think that's Really wonderful. And I'm actually curious about the mountain bike because um, for me, what tiny bit of mountain biking I have done, I feel completely out of control. It's terrifying (laughs) that I'm going to smash into a tree. Um, So it's really not my jam. But I'm curious for you, like, why was that appealing? What about that? I don't know what it was. It was something uh, I I really love um, uh, downhill skiing. That's something that I absolutely love. So I do a lot of downhill skiing and, and I kind of felt that that thing that I the more I did it I became kind of good at it and Mm -hmm. uh, but it was only during winter so during summer I was kind of waiting to get up on the mountain and do some some skiing and I don't really know how I kind of 
started to look at mountain biking, but it's very similar. Mm-hmm. It's actually mm-hmm. very similar. So, or similar, but it's the same kind of mental <laughs> kind of thing to just throw yourself out there and just kind of trust. And the balance is quite similar in a way. You just have to go with whatever obstacle are there and your legs and your whole body just have to take the bumps. And you have to be totally concentrated on what you're doing. You can't think about anything else. So it's very meditative, actually, <laughs> to yeah. be out there in the forest or on the mountain. I'm curious, like for you, compare the state of mind when you are downhill skiing or mountain biking to when you are creating your artwork. Yeah. Is there the same kind of fast-paced um, yeah. adrenaline that comes with it? Or is it different? It is. Or now when I have developed a kind of a process that is kind of very, uh, I know exactly what to do next when I do my art to not get stuck. It is a bit similar. It's, it's kind of, you just throw yourself in there or out there or where, um, on the mountain or in the forest on the bike or in my art. And I just go with what happens and I just have to take the bumps and the kind of, uh, ugly parts when painting as they come and I just go for it and as soon as I stop it's the same in skiing biking and painting you are so right gosh you are spot on I won't even charge you for this session I mean no. <laughs> get some real aha moment but the thing is if I stop in my art you are so right because if I stop and really kind of look at it or or analyze it I I will fall or I will fall on the mountain. I will fall in the forest if I kind of stop. And when painting, I will get stuck. Uh, so it's, it is yeah. kind of, yeah, the same even. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Which doesn't mean that doesn't happen that you don't get stuck, but that you, when you're at your best, maybe, or the, the part that feels the best, it, it is a similar experience. Well, so you, you've talked about knowing I'm stuck. I'm in that ugly part. Like, wh- what do you do in yeah. that moment? Because we all yeah, get and, there. And, and yes, it's terrible. it is terrible. <laughs> and it's really, really hard. And the only thing I can do is just to kind of do. And it's the same when I when I do mountain biking or skiing. If I fall, you just have to get up and get out of that situation. You can't kind of, uh, if you stay there, you are stuck. But And it's the same in painting. I just have to. I start with collage. Maybe I actually change piece. I might not continue on the same one. But I kind of try to get my flow Mm -hmm. back, get some collage done or paint or another painting. And then I get back when I am in my flow. Uh, And Mm -hmm. and in the painting as well, I, I really kind of sit and look at it a lot and kind of feel and, and just be stay in that ugly face and just let it be ugly and not be afraid of it. It's like kind of staying there as well. So it's two parts to it. It's to kind of get your flow back, but to not be afraid of that ugly face because it's there and it, it happens right. to everyone. And right. I mean, it's a cliche, but some of the best art I've done, I've had real trouble somewhere in the middle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I've talked about this with a lot of artists. Some of my favorite pieces are the ones that I completely either sanded down, worked, covered over, whatever, but there was still sort of that essence and aura there that made the final piece yeah. really great. Yeah. You know, one of my favorites. But this, this this idea of the ugly stage, I've been thinking about it more. I guess last week he he does these monstrous uh, murals, really beautiful, but so he has an audience for the whole thing and he doesn't have them completely planned out ahead of time. And so when he, he too has the ugly middle and yet there's an audience for it. And I was like, Oh, that would just be like my worst, you know, nightmare. I'm naked somewhere type thing. Like, Oh, I have to go through that phase in this public way. But that I started thinking about that too, for a lot of self-taught artists. So that maybe didn't go to, you know, MFA, BFA, that kind of thing. We, we end up having some of that messy middle of our, our art career of when we're trying out new things. We haven't quite found our voice. It is so easy to share all of our work right now, and we're encouraged to share it, and there's obviously benefits to that. But it puts that messy middle of our own trajectory out there, maybe before we're ready. I mean, possibly that is a benefit. Well, not possibly. It's definitely a benefit of 
art schools, you work through that mm-hmm. in a very systematic way with this body of people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, sometimes it's unpleasant, but that's but that's what you're doing mm-hmm. there. And so that by the time you arrive publicly, you've kind of worked that out. And so I'm curious, do you do you think it's you know we encourage people to share? Is that are we doing them a, a disservice, or, or how do you feel about that for particularly self-taught artists? Yeah, I I think it it is it's for me the the answer is to to share and and I do these big murals in public places as well and and kind of stay there in that ugly face and I I really I've I really try to encourage people to not be afraid of negative feelings and rejection and being unsuccessful or not successful. I I think we, if we dare to kind of just not be perfect all the time, I think we will kind of feel better actually, but it's extremely hard. So I would at the same time be really careful. And if someone feels a lot of negative feelings be a bit careful maybe not show everything or it's it's a hard question actually i mm. i would say yes and no <laughs> yeah i think i think i find myself being confused with my thoughts on it because mm-hmm. in general one of the things i have always said is what makes someone an artist to me is if they create and they're willing to share it doesn't mean sell mm-hmm. but they're willing to share and put it out there on the mm. other hand, in in the way we have now, and there are all these avenues of which have a bit of a business component to them, your Instagrams and the Facebook. So the sharing mm. becomes almost in that world of, I am a professional artist and I intend mm. to sell this work. Mm-hmm. That makes it more confusing, I think, to me of whether or not I feel like that should be a goal for everyone. I don't know that it should be and no. needs to be. No, I think sometimes there's a pressure for that these days. Like I hear so many people online really pushing that. And mm. I, I question whether that's true for every person coming mm. through the art. I do a lot of, of both online classes and in-person classes where, uh, and, and my message is always that you do the art for yourself only. And it's the time you spend doing it. That is the important part. It's not the result. And then at the same time, in my online classes, I say, why don't you share and show what you've been doing? Very mm-hmm. paradoxical. But I think also if I have I have groups on Facebook for my classes and I have a community on Facebook where I have a lot of people that are interested in my kind of process and yeah, in that group community, it's open for everyone. But um I think in those groups, it's amazing the energy and the um, all the comments and the kind of feedback people get from their art. It's there. There you don't share to put up a portfolio or put up. Um, uh, I think it's it's very different from Instagram. Instagram is more mm-hmm. like a like a window, and you create that what people mm-hmm. see. You create kind of your yeah. identity and so on. And it's, it's curated. Yeah. yeah, it's curated and it's always there. While yeah. in these Facebook groups that I have, and there are heaps of them, uh, you kind of just, everything is still on there, but it's that's not the important part. It's more mm-hmm. sharing to get some feedback and maybe even share the really ugly part. Look, look at how mm-hmm. ugly, ugly this is. And then someone <laughs> comes with some really nice <laughs> comments and it's, it's actually really, really nice. Those communities I feel is amazing and, and people are really growing in them. Yeah. And it's very different from from Instagram. Actually, I love Instagram, so I'm not. I'm. I love it, but it's very different. Well, I think that's a really good distinction because the you know you're right in those Facebook groups. They're more akin to like the community in my my where my art studio is, and that group of people, and that who I might say, hey, can you walk in here? What what are you thinking when you look at this? Mm-hmm. You know, just talk to me for a minute. And I think those kind of Facebook groups really do give that potential for that type of camaraderie and support and mm. security too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm curious. So when you went back 
to Sweden. And at that point, I think I've, I've heard you say that you started that now you're going to split your time. And part of the time you're going to be an artist and eventually uh, working towards being a full-time artist that you are now. But when you first kind of came back and said, this is what I'm doing, did you did you have any resistance from friends, family, uh, colleagues? Yeah, I, th- I think people thought it was very strange uh, in one way and maybe very brave at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think people kind of looked at it a bit um it, uh, that people thought, yeah, that it was brave. Like envy is such a negative word. Yeah. I don't want to use that, but I don't know any better word. But a little bit, you know, yeah. wow, she is daring to do something different because a lot of my friends had similar kind of careers and, and backgrounds. Uh, so I think there was definitely both. Um, and I had um, an employer uh, that was, fantastic and that when I said I only wanted to work 50 percent or half time and do my art on the side um, they were they were happy and they kind of encouraged me to do that so it, I was really really lucky that I had a, an employer that that wanted me to explore something else I think they really thought that I would come back uh, and do full time <laughs> And, you know, the years went by and I got more and more engaged in my in my art business. And they kind of after a while felt that, hmm, oops, she might not actually come back 100 percent or do full time. But they I was lucky that I had a role that we were going to face out. So I slowly, slowly faced out myself uh, in that business. And it took it was probably during five years. So it was a very long time. And yeah. um, so that, that was that was lucky and and I could kind of build my my art business very slowly and and uh, which was good. But you know, I take question with because a lot of people will say when you when you try one of these transitions, like, oh, you're so lucky you can do that, or you know, it, there's always this element of luck. And actually, I don't know if I think it's luck anymore that it's, you know, it's helpful when you actually have a spouse or an employer that's very supportive and, and helps create these spaces. But I'm willing to guess you would have done it even if that wasn't true. Like even if that employer hadn't been so supportive, it probably made it easier. But would you really have not done it? I think there's some internal drive that makes us make these choices. Yeah. And I th- I think to to be able to be lucky, you have to Put yourself in that position. I think. I think mm-hmm. there's a really good saying. I don't know it, but that says something like that. Uh, lucky people, you know, have put themselves in that position. So, so they are yeah. not lucky by luck. They are. They are lucky because they are there, and and they right. grab the opportunity, and they are brave right. to do that. And I think that's that's really. And and maybe they sacrifice things as well. So mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I'm lucky, and I had had, uh, and I was brave, but I also sacrificed things. So it's, right. it's things that I cannot do nowadays that I could have done if I had been doing what I did before before my art business. So I mean, from a right. uh, financial point of view, for example, it's it's a huge difference. And right. Uh, do you have any regrets about that? No, not at all, actually. But uh, saying that I, I do, I mean, it's one of the things that I'm working really hard on, on in my business. And that is to really kind of get my revenue to be more passive and uh, also more uh, kind of, what is that? I'm missing a word, but stable. So mm-hmm. it's more kind of consistent. Yes, consistent. Yeah. Yeah. So now it's very up and down, and I sell yeah. a class, I sell a lot, and then I don't yeah. sell anything, and then I do an exhibition, and I sell nothing, and then I do another exhibition, and I sell a lot. Right. It's really unpredictable. Right. <laughs> and that's right. the the unpredictability, if that is a word, mm-hmm. um, I I can. That's maybe something that is not very kind of. I might long for the predictability that that is maybe something that I'm really missing to, you know, every month you get your, your salary yeah. on the account or on the, in the bank. Right. Right. But except from that. 
Well, and, and I've been thinking a lot about that too. And sometimes I think it's problematic that we try to use business language and business concepts and models with the art world because it sometimes it just doesn't equate. And, you know, this, even things as simple as scalability, like does all <laughs> artwork, is it really scalable? Should it be scalable? I mean, you know, what is that? And, and certainly there's a way you can do that, but is that kind of the model that we hold out there for the majority yeah. of people? It's like, I don't know, you know, and something clearly in the last few years, I think with the ability to do so much online has shifted a real focus to that. But I, there are times that I wonder, like, are we kind of sending people down the wrong path of expectations? I'm like, that's a weight um, that I don't know that they ever completely yeah. stack up side by side. I don't know. I think about it a lot and and struggle. And and you are doing an amazing job of, you know, so you, you, you're creating your own work and you're showing in galleries and you've got a tremendous online presence with workshops and online workshops. I mean, so your workshops are always sold out and they're in Sweden and Norway, and you're coming to the United States, which is very <laughs> exciting. Um, how do you do that, frankly? I mean, I, I do see comments from people that they talk about um, the participants of how they feel so welcomed and included. Um, how do you create that aura, I guess? Yeah, I, I um, a couple of different things I'm, I'm thinking about. I, I, this thing with having different kind of legs to stand on, I think is really important and I do come from a really kind of techie business background so this thing with scalability for me was something that I was thinking about it was just you know almost in my DNA yeah yeah and and it made sense yeah so the online business was something that I felt oh that's the only thing I can scale I cannot scale making art that's that's finite I can only Mm -hmm. do so many paintings and I can increase my my prices of course that's something that i can kind of and and i can Mm -hmm. only do so many workshops i mean i don't want to work every weekend and i every evening when people can do workshops so so online was was the way to kind of scale but then when i started to to uh, work with that i realized that there was something completely different than money and scaling that that gave me suddenly i reached people in all corners of the world i i had a, a free workshop mm-hmm. uh, weekend that i uh, earlier this year um and of course that was free but but people signed up i think i had 35 countries wow uh, people from i mean and and suddenly something else started to kind of um well i realized that i'm reaching people that want something that kind of I have realized and and they they yeah they pay me money but they get something that Mm -hmm. is really important for them and that Mm -hmm. is so much more important for me (laughs) than than the actual money to share something and give something and I don't know if that's I guess that's something that people do feel and and this uh, the process that I have kind of gone through and worked with myself with not being so perfect and creating art for the sake of creating the time I spend and not the result and uh, to just do something that we love doing especially for women that maybe most things they do are actually for other people Uh, not saying that men doesn't do that but I have mostly women in my my uh, classes so I connect very well with women I think it's something I I kind of show and do something that many women kind of just want or need or feel very familiar with. And that's, I think, why people kind of like what I'm doing. Yeah. They may want some of that mountain biking um, adrenaline that you yeah. have. Like, I think, yeah. I think that a lot of people long for yeah. that and that is scary and they can't quite imagine no, that. Without mountain biking, because that's very kind of hard yeah. and, and scary, yeah. really scary kind of, yeah. 
Right. There's a lot of reasons yeah. why someone might not be able to do that physicality, yeah. the location, expense, whatever. But a journal, yeah. um, and, and I love I love that you do use for a lot of your workshops and the, the art journals, like you start with something kind of grungy and messy. Like, I think that's brilliant yeah. rather than this nice pristine, I got my Carson, whatever. It's beautiful. Now I don't want to touch it. Yeah. <laughs> I have 12 of those. I have 12 beautiful untouched notebooks. My bookshelf is <laughs> Full of, of art journals that I haven't started. Beautiful books right. that I got given, you know, with handmade paper. Right. And I'm like, oh, my God, yes. I would just ruin them. The weight of that, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, what is going on there? I can't write anything. Paint. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's setting with that grunge. But so then once you start with that and you can just sort of let loose and, and maybe you do show someone how to tap into that mm-hmm. that mountain biking feeling that... Mm. Yeah, that fearlessness. Yeah. I don't know. I, I I think you're right again. Actually, I I do think that people because and also I mean if you actually just look at at what I'm doing, it's it's not just beautiful. It's actually quite ugly while I'm doing it. So I think and and things doesn't work out as I as as I kind of because when I do classes, I do have I want to show something and it doesn't really work. And I think I kind of genuinely show that in my classes. I'm like, no, this didn't work. So, okay, let's do something. (laughs) What about ripping this out? And then we do something else. We glue it together. And I actually do that in my classes. I show that I don't do the perfect things either. It's not that I, I have kind of got this process and now I can do what we all want to do. No, I'm not there. I'm just... Well, it's like the Julia Childs. I mean, that's why her initial French cooking show was so... Uh, amazing because she was like, oh, that didn't work, you know, and yeah. this, this thing yeah. is bubbling over. And I think people want to know like, oh, okay, well, that happens. And that's real. And she's, she's a professional, you know, with a capital A artist. And okay, I move on. Yeah, um, it is very liberating, I think. And, yeah. and I think those online classes are, they're safer for some people. Um, they may be obviously more accessible for a lot of people, and they do serve a real purpose. Um, yeah. And I think, I don't know, for me, like, a, part of the evolution of being an artist is recognizing it's not just about that thing that hangs on the wall or stands on a pedestal. Like that's, Mm. that's a lovely product that does sometimes bring people in, but it's this far more complex of uh, sharing something with people, how that impacts them and and Mm. understanding what your role is in that. Mm. And that is way bigger than, you know, how to use, oil pastels yeah it's it's just on this much bigger plane yeah the actual techniques I mean I in all my classes I show techniques and material and how I used it but I mean any of that you can get on YouTube or you can try it yourself you know that that's not the important part even though that's kind of this next step next step Uh, but but to actually just dare to pick something up and actually use it and waste it because that's another thing I think people have a really nice art supply and then they just feel that they waste them and and that was a hard time for me for a long time I'm guilty of that I'm guilty of that I won't like oh no I shouldn't waste that no yeah I'll I'll grab this cheaper one instead instead of the Mm -hmm. one with really nice pigment or whatever I'll be real stingy and just use a little bit it doesn't really go very far it has not the same effect at all yeah yeah I'm not a depression baby but you wouldn't know it sometimes by the way I act in the studio well so if you could do anything like a dream project and and it's one of those beautiful moments where money is not an obstacle um what would you do what would you tackle I think I would do uh, gather a lot of of creative people together, do a big art retreat or where we create together. Not not the or maybe I would kind of run classes and get other uh, artists in to do, but to gather a lot of of people in real life. That's one thing that I would really kind of like to do. I've tried where I've done smaller retreats and I just love it. And and I would love to be able to get people all over the world to kind of meet up, not really a COVID friendly kind of activity, but maybe one day or yeah. attend one. But but yeah. that, that's one dream. And then another one is actually to, to 
exhibit my art somewhere where and kind of um, maybe even get someone to exhibit my art in a in a bigger kind of um, not bigger venue but in a bigger um, or more I don't know prestigious kind of gallery or something that's something that I really want and I don't know why I want it mm-hmm. it's it's mm-hmm. really kind of opposite everything I but I guess mm-hmm. that's one of the the things that you know that that measures success I'm trying to say that I'm not there but I must admit I'm there too <laughs> well but it's it's important to recognize yeah. like what it is that you deep down like what does success look like what does it feel like for you and yeah. and know like not so much to judge it but just know like that is one of the things like for me, if, if I had that, I would feel successful. Mm. So like, I can just own it, you know, yeah. and, and that put is, it out in the world. That's what I'm look. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard though, sometimes to be honest with ourselves, like uh, about things like that, because mm. it's hard not to put judgment on that of, well, that's an egotistical thing or, oh, yeah. that's a, you're just a product of the, yeah. I don't know, the system that that's what you want. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, I, I don't think I will be more happy as a person afterwards, but it's definitely if someone would come up here and say, what about this? I would jump on it straight away. Absolutely. What, what do you need? I will put all hours into doing something like mm-hmm. that. So it's definitely something mm-hmm. that I don't think I'd put that out. You really mm-hmm. got me to get some aha moments and com- do some real confessions. <laughs> You know, I've been talking about success before. I've been talking about, you know, it's. <laughs> That's right. The next podcast yeah. is art yeah, confessions. No. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Well, if there was something you would like to share before we leave uh, with other artists who maybe are on some sort of tipping point, either just getting started or they're well into it, but kind of feeling like, oh, I want mm-hmm. that gallery show or whatever it is, what would you say to them? Yeah, t- two things actually that I think is important is the wrong word but that that really has helped me one thing is to really start to listen to what I what I what what do I want do I really want this Mm -hmm. or or and really kind of listen and trust trust yourself and the other thing is to give it time doesn't have to happen today it doesn't have to happen this year it might not even have to happen next year but if there's something I want and I kind of grab the opportunities that come along I don't even have to really push it myself but stay open and kind of work very slowly in one direction I I think we can reach really far uh, but but if we just kind of and make up goals and go for them and run in one direction. It's easy to stumble or to get, I mean, there are so many rejections on the way. And, and if we mm-hmm. kind of feel that the rejections are, uh, are holding us back or just take the time and, and just go in the direction you want very slowly just one step at a time. I have one artist friend who is engaged in a 100 rejection project and her goal is to get at least 100 rejections, which of course is just genius, right? Because in the course of that, she's going <laughs> to get yeses and you know, then you'll be like, oh, darn, a yes, you know, I'm I'm yes. 12 away from my 100. I just actually think that's a wonderful project. <laughs> that's amazing. And then you're talking about the pace of things. I was listening to, um, it's a book I really am enjoying called Think Like a Monk, but one of his examples of um, that, you know, we put too much pressure on ourselves in the society to, to get rich, to get successful, uber successful at a really young age. And he's like, there are some people who have had these great successes at 37. And I was like, Oh, wow, good for them. <laughs> but you're right, like this idea of everything has to happen soon, everything has mm. to be fast, like it's a, it's kind of just ridiculous. And if you let that go, and that things happen when yeah. they happen, Take and it's it. You know, it's all kind of part of it. Mm-hmm. It has to happen. And it has to happen in the way it's going yeah. to. And be okay with that. Yeah. yeah. Jenny, this has been so much fun. And as I already told Jenny, like I came into this uh, interview today thinking like, oh, my surroundings were all messed up. And I was going to like, ah, how's it going to work? This is so much fun. You have totally made my day. Um, I hope you're going to go off and go mountain biking, although it's in the evening. So maybe I shouldn't want that for you. You'll go crashing into a tree. But um, 
I hope you will get some more energy. I, I actually, I think I will. Yeah, I think I actually will go mountain biking because I do that in the dark. Oh my! So God. I put my <laughs> really, yeah, my headlight on and I go. I think, and I do a lot of falling. So uh, my husband is like, oh, bring your mobile phone with you because you're, you're doing a hundred fall project. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> And uh, no, so mountain biking I might do tonight. And um, I really, I'm, I'm really kind of fascinated about the, the, the discussion we've had because I have got some real aha moments. And yeah, and some confessions about my <laughs> deep desires. And yeah, really interesting. Thank you very, very much. Thank for, you. Thank you so much. Have a great evening. Well, that wraps it up for us today. You can find Jenny online at JennyGrantArt.com or on Instagram at FlowByJenny. Thank you all for joining me today. I want to thank my artist friend Karen Allen for the 100 Rejection Project I mentioned in my conversation with Jenny. I really love the idea of turning the negative energy of rejections on its head and intentionally seeking rejection. Just imagine all the shows, galleries, residencies, and other opportunities you'll have to research and submit to in order to meet your goal of 100 rejections. Of course, inevitably, you will also receive a good number of acceptances on your way to meeting your goal. I'm thinking a version of this project might be a good one for me to tackle next year. I'd love to know if any of you have tried this and how it went for you. Until next time, stay kind, stay positive, and keep swimming.